You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Please go ahead and find your seat if you haven't yet. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor on staff here at Midtown, and I'm very excited to be back with you guys. Uh, this morning, we are jumping back into our Sermon on the Mount series. We took a little break from it for Easter, and we had just a phenomenal Easter season at Midtown, didn't we? Like, haven't the last few weeks been really, really good to our church? I've just really enjoyed it. Um, uh, but I also enjoy the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we're, we are jumping back in now after three weeks away. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus, it's his kingdom manifesto, it's his kingdom vision, it's the kingdom passport, it's the kingdom agenda. It is his vision, his dream of what life could look like for you and for our world if people would become disciples, apprentices of him, and learn from him how to have a what he calls a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, meaning a righteousness that comes from the inside out. It's his vision of what could happen in your life and in our world if his disciples could learn from him how to seek first the kingdom of God. It's his vision for how you can be delivered from things like fear and anxiety if you learn how to trust God to provide for your needs. That's the, pretty much a summary of Matthew chapters 5 and 6. And this morning, we're going to jump into the final third of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start it off in Matthew 7, talking about the most popular verse in the Bible. Now, maybe you thought the most popular verse in the Bible was John 3.16, and maybe that used to be the most popular verse in the Bible. But the most popular verse in the Bible now is in Matthew chapter 7. So if you would, I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you're able, and I will read our teaching text for this morning, and then I will say, these are God's words to us, and then you will say, thanks be to God, and then we will get into the text. So hear now the very words of God from Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. So let's look at this first verse, Matthew 7, 1. Oh, yes. The <laughs> Thank you. These are God's words to us this morning. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <laughs> I ought to start just writing it into my notes. Um, this is why in other church traditions, they just do it out of, the, of a prayer book or something. You do it the same way every Sunday like that. Okay. Matthew 7.1, the new most popular verse in the Bible, do not judge. 
Everybody knows this verse. Everyone knows Jesus said this verse, whether you're a Christian or not. Everybody wants to interpret this verse in such a way that justifies their own worldview and lifestyle and moral values. And the result is that this teaching of Jesus has been rather vandalized in our culture. And so what I want to do this morning is try and recover something of the real picture together. So we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean when he says judge? What does he mean by that word judge? The Greek word krino, judge, it means to separate or to distinguish and hence to select. Uh, You are judging when you go to the supermarket and you go into the produce section and you pick out a particular piece of fruit and you examine it and you go, well, does the color seem right and does it smell right and does it it feel right and is, is it ripe and is this the right piece of fruit? And when you finally do pick that right piece and put it in your shopping cart, you have judged. You have selected a piece of fruit. Now, the context matters a lot when we're looking at this word in the scripture because judgment can have a very positive or a very negative connotation. Good judgment, discernment, uh, a keen perception of right and wrong uh, is a very positive thing. But that's not exactly the kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about, um, he's not talking about someone who's discerning. He's talking about someone who's judgmental, right? He's not talking about someone who is perceptive. He's talking about someone who is petty. The warning is against uh, those who are judgmental and who are petty and are sort of hypercritical um, and hypocritical. We'll get to that later. Hyper, hypercritical. And look at his rationale. Jesus doesn't say, do not judge because that's, that's mean. Do not judge because that's kind of rude. Do not judge because that's not cool, man. He doesn't say that. He says, do not judge. Why? Because you will be judged. In fact, even more than that, he says, verse 2, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the question we have to ask here is, judged by who? Judged by who? You might think he means that when we judge people harshly, they might turn around and judge us us harshly right back. And that's probably true, but that's not exactly what he means or what he's talking about. You know, the consistent teaching of the Bible is that we aren't supposed to fear judgment from people, right? So whose judgment are we supposed to be concerned with here? Well, God's judgment, of course. And see, this point becomes very simple to understand. If you're judgmental hypercritical, petty, then you are inviting God to judge you more harshly. And whatever standard, the higher the standard that you want to impose on people, uh, God will hold you to the same higher standard. Now, from the positive perspective, though, if you're merciful and gracious to people, then God will be merciful and gracious with you. Now, you may say, wait, I thought the whole point of Christianity was that God isn't going to judge me, right? Like, I thought the whole point was that God was not holding anything against me anymore on account of my faith in Christ and that my sins are forgiven and that God won't judge me. And isn't that the point of Christianity? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say in Romans chapter 14, where he writes this, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand... Before God's judgment seat, it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us 
will give an account of ourselves to God. See, for Paul, the reality that all of us someday will have to stand before the judgment seat of God becomes this leveler in relationships. So you may think uh, that you have a right to be critical and to judge others. Um, And you justify it in your mind this way. You think being judgmental and condemning people isn't so bad if you're condemning the right things, right? Oh, if the thing that I'm judging and condemning is an actual condemnable thing, then the fact that I'm judgmental about it or critical about it or condemning about it is not that big a deal. In fact, God is probably pretty proud of me anyway for the way that I'm defending his truth, the way that I'm sticking up for God's standards and I'm sticking up for God's values. And if I get a little judgmental about it sometimes, then probably God will just chalk that up to human imperfection and I'm good. And yet one day God will sneak up behind you and tap you on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you're in my seat. This is the judge's bench. Your seat is over there. It's the one that says defendant, right? In the courtroom of God, we are not the judge, we are not the prosecution, we're not even the bailiff, we are the defendant. Karl Barth wrote this, he wrote that the root and origin of sin is the arrogance in which people want to be both their own and their neighbor's judge. The root and origin of sin, all sin, is the arrogance in which people want to be able to define the moral standards for themselves and then impose them on other people. Uh, But we are not the judge. We won't be the judge, not at the end, because we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Now, Jesus continues in this teaching by lightening the mood, thank goodness, uh, with a, a humorous illustration that highlights two characteristics of the kind of judgmentalism that he's warning against. Here's two characteristics of judgmental people. The first is that judgmental people are quick to notice minor flaws in others while missing major faults in themselves. Jesus says this, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? See, right off the bat, this reference to eyes should actually call our attention back to chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, where Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, if your eye is clear, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The word plank refers to, you know, people sometimes say, you know, it's like a speck in a two-by-four. It's more than a two-by-four. The word plank refers to the central beam that held up the houses that Jesus, uh, that these people lived in. Uh, It's less like a two-by-four, and it's more like a railroad tie or a tree trunk or a telephone pole. Or, for example, I invite you to just look up and behold a plank. These huge, huge beams. If you have one of these in your eye, that's a major flaw. By contrast, how serious of a problem is a speck in your eye? Like in the big scheme of things, how big a problem is that? It's not that, it's not that big a problem, right? I mean, like it's uncomfortable, it's very painful, it can, it can be totally besetting and preoccupying. Like for example, like if I put my contact lens in wrong and it's folded over, my eye gets puffy and red and I start to cry involuntarily and it's like I can't do anything until I figure out how to fix my crooked uh, contact lens. But 
it's not an urgent or a critical threat to my total well-being, right? It's a minor issue, not a major one. Nevertheless, judgmental people fixate on the minor flaws in others while neglecting to notice the major faults in themselves. The word look in verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? It means to gaze. It means to be so focused and so fixated on something uh, that you can't see anything else. So the picture here is of a judgmental person who's so preoccupied with one minor thing about somebody that they can't see anything else about them. They're totally blind to the reality of the person, the totality of the person. All they see is the problem, and they conflate the person with the problem. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking, okay, I think I'm doing pretty okay here, because I know that I've got issues. Um, and I don't think that I'm so hypercritical. I don't think that I'm petty. But judgment shows up in another more subtle way. The second characteristic of, judgment, of judgmental people that we see in this passage is that they are quick to help or fix others without the capability or the credibility to do so. He says in verse 4, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? In other words, how will you help someone else when you're either unaware of or if you're ambivalent toward your own issues? So here's a kind of person who thinks that it's their responsibility to diagnose people's problems or their missteps and then to correct them, to straighten people out, to give them the lay of the land, to tell them what's what. And sometimes it masquerades as helping. Sometimes it even masquerades as mentoring or discipleship. But really it's judgment. I heard Anne Lamott, the writer, say once that help is the sunny side of control. And I'm sure she got that from AA. Help is the sunny side of control. Our help is usually not very helpful. Have you noticed that? In fact, sometimes our help can be downright toxic. If you spent a lot of time in church, then you may have experienced something I've experienced, which is when a church person butting into your life and sort of stepping over all kinds of boundaries and exercising unearned authority and acting like they have a right to know all sorts of things uh, about you and always giving you their opinion and commentary on your life, expressing their disapproval when you didn't ask for it, coming for you when you didn't send for them, and making these pushy prescriptions as though any decision you might make really ought to have their co-signature and their approval. They mean well, probably, and they really do think they're helping, even as they alienate you and you withdraw from them and they ignore all the signals. See, when we get pushy with people, and when we try and insert ourselves as an authority without an invitation, it shows that we don't really think they're capable of making their own choices or learning their own lessons. It shows that we think they need us. Like, without our wisdom, without my direction, without my input, they would be lacking. See, that's just judgment dressed up as help. And furthermore, it's a lack of confidence in God. Like, we, we think God isn't capable of teaching people lessons? But here's a tension, though. The tension is that very often we are called to judge people, aren't we? Like, very often the right thing, the proper thing to do is to judge somebody in the positive sense, right? Bosses have to assess their employees. Parents have to discipline their children. Pastors and elders have to protect the spiritual health of the church community. Single people have to evaluate the people they're dating and so on and so forth. Like, we have to do these things. And God doesn't call us to be blind, 
and God doesn't call us to be foolish, and God doesn't call us to suffer fools. Furthermore, uh, the Bible actually commends the kind of person who's willing to step in and to help someone else deal with their issues. But that, uh, to do that requires discernment, and it requires the ability to tell right from wrong. Um, one rabbi pointed out that the first thing God does in the Bible is separate light from dark. And if we're image bearers of God and his agents in this world, then that's part of our task as well, to separate light from darkness, to discern, to, in a sense, in a positive sense, to judge. But in our natural state, we are totally unequipped for that work. So therefore, Jesus says this, verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think we can extrapolate from this verse a sort of three-step cure for judgmentalism. A three-step cure for people like you and me who are constantly trying to, to foist our opinions on people as though we were the authority. Here's the three-step cure. Recognize, remove, restore. I did it. There's three. They all start with R. Recognize, remove, restore. First, we have to recognize the plank in our own eye. And that's much easier said than done. The issue with having a beam like this in your eye is that you can't see anything, certainly not the beam in your eye. So what we can do, though, is we can use the impulse to criticize other people or the impulse to judge other people. We can use that impulse as a trigger to ask ourselves this question, do I do that? It's very, very, very easy. Um, well, <laughs> maybe not. might not be easy to ask ourselves that question. But we can build this into a habit. We're around somebody and they're doing the thing. And all of you have a somebody that does a thing that drives you bonkers, like that just drives you up the wall, that you can't stand, that you fixate on, that you become preoccupied with, that you talk to everybody about. All of us has that thing. We can learn when we catch ourselves criticizing and judging, we can learn to use that impulse as a trigger to point our awareness at ourself. Another thing that we can do is we can ask the people who we spend the most time with what they see in our character. Not the people who we think will give us the nicest answer, the people who we spend the most time with, the people who know us the best, your spouse, your kids, your roommate, your coworkers. Ask them how they experience you. Ask them to tell you your faults. Ask them if they think you're too demanding. Ask them if they think you're too critical. We can also learn to recognize some of the comorbidities of judgmentalism. Uh, doctors use the, the word comorbidity to describe disease and, diseases and ailments that tend to occur alongside one another. Here are some, uh, some comorbidities of judgmentalism. So if you see these in your life, then you could continue to bark at that tree and you're probably going to find judgment there. Blaming. Blaming is a comorbidity of judgment. If you're trying to pass the blame, you're trying to avoid judgment, and you're trying to put yourself in the position of being in the right and someone else in the position of being in the wrong. That's judgment. Blaming is judgment. Uh, gossiping. Gossiping. So how often does the thing that annoys you and drives you crazy about somebody else become a topic of discussion between you and people besides that person? Why can you not let it go? Why is it always the thing you talk about? Well, it's because there's judgment there. 
It's because judgment has taken root in your heart. I think impatience can sometimes be a comorbidity of judgment. Sometimes judgmental people tend to be very impatient with others, um, impatient in wanting to step in and help, impatient in sort of tolerating the imperfections in others. Anger is very often a, a comorbidity of judgment. Anger, like judgment, is probably best left to God. I know people say, you know, well, there is such a thing as righteous anger. I'm like, yeah, I agree. I just think it's, it's kind of preposterous that we think we're capable of it, you know? <laughs> like, we can trust Jesus to go into the temple and turn over the tables. I'm not convinced that we can really trust ourselves to do that. You know what I'm saying? So that's the first step. We have to recognize the plank in our own eye. The second step is that we have to remove the plank in our own eye. We have to recognize it, and then we have to remove it, which is another way of saying that we have to allow God to remove it. Like None of us is actually really capable of removing the plank in our eye. None of us is actually capable in and of ourselves of transforming our character or transforming any other, anyone else's character. That's why judgmentalism is such an exercise in futility. Like You can't do anything to help them. You can't even help yourself. We need God to remove the plank's in our eyes. So here's some practices that I think can be incredibly helpful with this specifically. First, prayer. Prayer is incredibly important. Um, God will not remove the plank in your eye if you don't spend any time with him. Like, we have to actually give ourselves the time to experience transformation with God. And if you're wondering, well, what do I pray? For example, you could pray from Psalm 139, search my heart, O God, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Just replace that word anxious with whatever you need. Search my heart, O God, and know my judgmental thoughts. Search my heart, O God, and know my angry thoughts. Search my heart and know my arrogant thoughts, my critical thoughts. Second thing we can do is we can memorize scripture. People often tell me that memorizing scripture is really hard for them, and I get that. Memorizing scripture can be very hard, but sometimes it can be very easy. For example, repeat after me. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Look who just memorized scripture. Ten words. You can memorize scripture. And I'll tell you, if you meditate on that for a day, for a couple days, for a week, that'll do something to you. You can memorize scripture. Don't overdo it. Go with something workable and something helpful. Like, for example, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then you'll be able to say, like Martin Luther, I have two days on my calendar. This day and that day. <laughs> right? Another really helpful practice is confession. Confession. Um, confession looks different in different church traditions. In some traditions, you confess to the priest. In some traditions, you don't really have to confess to anybody. You can just deal with it between you and God and live in privacy. Um, I think confession is really important. It's very important that we confess our sins to God and that we actually confess our sins to other people. Um, judgmental people can't let people know about the imperfections when they start to realize that they're there. Um, often our impulse is to hide them because, man, we really want to. We really want to feel like we're a good person, and if we don't feel like we're a good person, we'll at least settle for other people thinking that we're good. We have to undermine that by actually confessing our sins uh, to one another. And then, lastly, this is um, not a traditional spiritual discipline, but maybe you need to go to therapy. You might. I'm just going to throw that one out there as a suggestion. I found therapy incredibly helpful 
in my life. So that's the second step. We have to remove the plank. More accurately, we have to allow God to remove the plank that is in our eye. And then lastly, once those two things are out of the way, and only once those two things are out of the way, can we move on to the third step, which is to restore, to restore others with a gentle approach. And we can't do that right away. We can't do it until we've allowed God to remove our plank. And even after we've allowed God to remove our plank, we should be patient to engage in this way. We should maybe let people come to us for help and ask for it before we start to meddle and assert ourselves. But here's what Paul says in Galatians 6. He gives uh, kind of a practical application to this same idea from the Sermon on the Mount. So Galatians 6, starting in verse 1, he says this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Now, we see a few different principles for restoration in these verses. For example, we see that we shouldn't initiate this process unless we're sure of the sin, right? Like, we shouldn't go and try and confront somebody unless we're absolutely sure that the thing that they're engaged in is sinful. And I want to suggest that in order to know what sin is and sin isn't, you need the mind of Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. In other words, prevailing wisdom, cultural wisdom will not help you in terms of distinguishing what is sin. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve and discern what God's will is. So we have to be sure of sin, but in order to discern sin, we have to have a renewed mind. The second thing we see is that not just anyone is to, is to correct others. This is not an everybody gets to play activity. It's reserved, uh, the, the authority to correct others is reserved for those who live and work in the Spirit's power and not their own. That's why it says, you who live by the Spirit should restore them gently. And so if you wonder, well, okay, am I living in the Spirit's power and not my own? How do I know that? Well, you could look, for example, to Romans 8. Those who live by the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Or you could look to Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all nine of them. And you could ask the people closest to you in your life, hey, do you see, where do you see love pervading in my life? Am I a peaceful person to you? Do you experience me as a non-anxious presence? Do you know me as someone who's gentle? Would you say that I'm a faithful person? We can trust people to tell us the truth. And we need to know that we're really living in the Spirit's power and not our own before we undertake to correct other people. We have to recognize that the goal is restoring them to spiritual and emotional health, not just straightening them out or managing behavior. That's why he says you have to uh, carry each other's burdens. If, it, if it's possible for you to engage with someone and to correct them without feeling the weight that they're feeling, I don't think it's your gig. And then lastly, all of this has to be done with the awareness that the person doing the correcting could just as easily be the one caught in the sin, or worse. 
like any of us, if we are really, really honest, each of us is really only like one or two bad decisions from making a total shipwreck of our life. Like all of us are in a very, very fragile state. So there's our three-step cure for judgmentalism. We recognize, we recognize the plank in our eye. We spend the time and we do the practices of formation necessary to have the transforming of our lives take place so that God can remove that plank and renew our mind. And then, then, only then, are we in a place where we can engage someone in a responsible or a healthy or godly way and help restore them from a place of brokenness to a place of spiritual health and stability. Now, Jesus goes on to say one of the most confusing things in the Gospels. In, in, in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 7, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Now, I've got to tell you, interpreters are like totally split on what this verse means. There is an extremely wide range of opinions everywhere from, oh, well, of course it means this, to we actually, it's impossible to interpret without more context. There's people who just sort of punt it. So what I want to do is just point a few things out about this verse. I mean, honestly, Carson and I talked about this verse for like a half hour on Thursday. Even we couldn't figure it out. So what I'm going to do is just, I'm going to point out a couple of things that, are, that I see in this verse, and then I'm going to offer a few options. So first of all, he talks about dogs and pigs, and we have to understand Dogs and pigs were not domesticated animals in this area. They really, they were unclean animals. Um, when Jesus says dogs, what he means is packs of wild dogs that would roam around and like eat in the big trash dump and pick at dead animals. I mean, just like hordes of ravenous wild dogs. And pigs, likewise, we, we, many of us know that pigs are unclean in Judaism, and there was not pig farming in the area where Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount, because it's all very observant, very devout Jews living there. And the archaeological evidence actually supports this. On the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is, and Chorazin, and Bethsaida, where Jesus did most of his ministry, very few pig bones. A lot of sheep bones, very few pig bones. If you go to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentile region, pig bones proliferate. So Jesus isn't talking, when he's talking about pigs, he's not talking about livestock. He's talking about like feral hogs that, uh, that can be enormous and violent and roam around in huge packs. So we have to understand, when he says dogs and pigs, he doesn't mean the cute little animals that we are familiar with today. He means like dangerous animals that they would be trying to avoid. Pearls, likewise, is kind of a loaded word. Where pearls was a Jewish idiom for wisdom teachings. And so if a rabbi was doing wisdom teachings, for example, like Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, then they would say he's stringing pearls. He's stringing pearls together. And likewise, the kingdom of God is symbolized in the book of Matthew as the pearl of great price. So with those two things in mind, you know, maybe dogs refers to the Gentiles generally, and pigs refers to the Romans. That's one thing that's been suggested. Sometimes the Jews would call Gentiles dogs in this context. Um, the pigs referring to Romans has a lot to commend it. Uh, the Romans had a legion of soldiers called the 10th Legion of the Strait, and this legion fought in Judea around the time that Jesus was born. They were stationed on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they fought in the area again in the Jewish-Roman War of A.D. 67 to 70, which is occurring right around the time that 
the Gospel of Matthew was first published. Um, like I said, they, they were stationed across the, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore. And so Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with this legion of soldiers. They would have interacted with them. And the mascot of this legion of sol- soldiers that's on their flags and their shields and their medallions and their coins was a wild boar. Remember, again, when Jesus is on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he encounters a man who's possessed by a, quote, legion of demons. And where does Jesus send those demons? Into pigs. Right, so maybe don't give pearls to pigs is Jesus' way of telling his disciples not to try to get the Romans to understand the kingdom of God because they just won't receive it. I mean, maybe this is just a specific commandment to his disciples that we don't really have a clear way to apply. Maybe he thought the Romans, their consciences are too seared, they're too far under the power of the Roman imperial cult, the kingdom of God is offensive to them, and it'll get the disciples killed. And it did. Several of the disciples were killed at the hands of the Romans, not to mention Jesus himself. Maybe, for another interpretive option, maybe it's advice for someone who's recognized and removed the plank in their eye, but nevertheless has chosen a bad subject for assistance. Like, you can't deal gently with a violent person. Maybe that's what it means. Or maybe it just simply means that you can't force things on people that they don't want. Things that they're not ready for, that they can't appreciate. You can't force things, even valuable things, on people who can't do anything with them. And then when you try to, you're the one who looks like an idiot, not them, right? I mean, a pig is not stupid for wanting to wear a pearl necklace. You're stupid for for entrusting your very precious pearls to a wild animal. I mean, maybe maybe that's the word picture. However we interpret it, this verse kind of baffles me uh, because throwing pearls to pigs is about as fitting a metaphor as I've ever heard for what happened when God sent Jesus into our world. I mean, is that not exactly what happened? Think of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. I mean, what else would you call it? God gave his son to us, and we trampled his teachings under our feet, and we turned and devoured him. In fact, we killed him in like the most dehumanizing and degrading way yet conceived by human beings. So it is hard for me to square Jesus saying, don't throw your pearls to pigs with the reality that his teachings and his kingdom and his own life were pearls which God threw to pigs like me and pigs like us. And you may or may not agree with that assessment of humanity, um, but I'm really not ashamed to say this morning that I'm, I'm much less impressed by humanity than other folks seem to be. Um, I think most people are in extreme denial about themselves, including me, most of the time. I think we have a profound capacity to be in denial about ourselves. We think we've got stuff figured out, and we are very proud of our accomplishments, and we think that like, with the right plan, and if I had the right uh, information, and if I gave as, you know, enough effort, then I could really change myself, and I could become even more impressive. And the reality is that we think we have free wills. We can really do whatever we want. And therefore, if we wanted to be better, if we wanted to improve, we'd be better. And you think, about, you think that about yourself, probably, and you think that about other people. And that's why you judge them harshly when they don't meet your standards or when their behavior doesn't approve or improve, uh, when their lives don't improve according to your timetable. Uh, but the Bible 
does not share our optimistic view of human freedom. If the Bible contains the truth, then our freedom is actually much more limited than we admit or than we're even prepared uh, to realize. All of us are sort of beset by these paralyzing forces of ego and anxiety and anger and prejudice and retribution, self-gratification. Anyone here who's ever struggled with like anxiety or depression or mental illness or trauma or addiction or your weight or your body or any number of other things knows firsthand like we are not nearly as free as we think, right? We are not rational creatures who could succeed given the right circumstances. We are appetite-driven creatures, and we are all screwed up and broken and clingy and narcissistic and scared, even those of us who appear to have it together. And all of us are scrambling desperately to try and convince ourselves and convince everyone else that this is not the case. And in that way, we're actually worse off than dogs and pigs because at least dogs and pigs do not spend most of their waking hours in complete denial about what they are. You see, if you're wrong about yourself, then you'll be wrong about everyone else. If you think that you can improve yourself, then you will look down on those who don't seem to be able to do it. If you think, um, you know, if you have pride because of some quality or achievement, then you'll judge those who lack it. Like, if you think being a hard worker really makes you something, then you will judge anyone you perceive as lazy, etc., etc. Depravity is the Christian word for human nature, apart from God's intervention. And as our communion servers get ready to serve communion, I want to talk a bit about depravity. Um, Marilyn Robinson explains the idea of depravity perfectly in an essay called On Prigs and Puritans, which is part of her essay collection, The Death of Adam. Um, if you don't know Marilyn Robinson, I think you ought to. She is one of the greatest living American fiction writers. Her book, Gilead, won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 2005. It's one of the most beautiful books you'll ever read. And Marilyn Robinson is a Christian. In fact, she's a Calvinist. I don't, have explain, I don't have time to explain what Calvinist means, but that will mean something to some of you. Um, and she is actually one of the best apologists for the Christian faith in America right now. Here's what she says. The doctrine of depravity means, quote, we are all absolutely, that is equally, unworthy of and dependent upon the free intervention of grace. For in fact, life makes goodness much easier for some people than for others. Isn't that true? And it is rich with varieties of cautious or bland or malign goodness. In the Bible, referred to generally as self-righteousness, and invade against as grievous offenses in their own right. Here's the key. The belief that we are all sinners gives us excellent grounds for forgiveness and self-forgiveness and is kinder than any expectation that we might be saints, even while it affirms the standards all of us fail to attain. I'm going to read the last sentence again because it's so good. The belief that we are all sinners gives us excellent grounds for forgiveness and self-forgiveness and is kinder than any expectation that we might be saints, even while it affirms the standards all of us fail to attain. 
So as it turns out, the big secret to regarding people non-judgmentally is not to see the best in people, it's actually to see the worst in people, including and especially ourselves. And then, uh, as the, the poet W.H. Auden put it, then we can love our crooked neighbor with our crooked heart. See, God is not like us. In Isaiah 55, God says, your ways are not my ways. And your thoughts are not my thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He says in 1 Samuel 16, God does not see as man sees. Man sees the outward appearance only, but God sees the heart. We label people and we categorize them so we can judge them easily, but God doesn't show partiality. We yield so often to like fads and trends and cultural opinion, but God doesn't share our fickle, our fickle attitudes. He judges on an unchanging standard of righteousness. We judge people to tear them down, to put them in our place, and to prop ourselves up, but God's judgment is displayed on the cross of Christ, who doesn't put us in our place, but simply takes our place and makes our place his place. I want to invite the band up as we uh, prepare to take communion together. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 3. Paul writes this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God, in his patience, had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. So who do we think we are, really? Who do we think we are, and how could any of us judge someone else when the only just judge has already been judged in their place and in ours? Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.